Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher do not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of books offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 95 of History of the Marine Corps, Post-War Delusionment, Part 2. This episode begins by introducing the Marines in China after World War I. We move on to the Commandants who led the Corps during the 20 years between the World Wars and discuss the creation of the Fleet Marine Force, better training, and establishing the Marine Corps birthday as we know it today. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Most of the Marine Corps' efforts were spent supporting foreign affairs in the Caribbean and South America after World War I. But as the initiative started to require less support from the Marines, they began to dedicate more resources to training and developing their educational and training system. The Corps continued efforts to advance the experience of its expeditionary force, and it eventually evolved into what we know as the Fleet Marine Force more commonly referred to amongst Marines as the Fleet. This nickname is universally known as Life After Boot Camp and MOS School. It's the actual Marine Corps, and doesn't include the introductory training Marines undergo to become Marines. On December 7, 1933, the Secretary of the Navy, Claude Swanson, released General Order No. 241, titled The Fleet Marine Force. I'll post the general order on our website so you could read. But in short, it lists nine requirements for the Marine Corps. The first requirement sums up the purpose of the fleet. Quote, the force of Marines maintained by the Major General Commandant in a state of readiness for operations with the fleet is hereby designated as Fleet Marine Force, or FMF, and as such shall constitute a part of the organization of the United States fleet and be included in the operating force plan for each fiscal year." Unquote. This Marine Force organized the Corps to the structure we're familiar with today, and the new FMF began to be put in use in other United States foreign affairs. One of those was in China. After World War I, China began to see more civil wars, warlords rising in power, and the Chinese nationalist movement change their economic and social trends. When the campaign first occurred in 1923, it was influenced mainly by the Russian Bolsheviks. In the early 1900s, most Russians lost faith in the country's failed leadership, and as a result, the people started to rebel. In 1912, 
the Marxist Russian Social Democratic Labor Party split into two factions, one being the Mensheviks and the other the Bolsheviks, a far-left revolutionary faction led by Vladimir Lenin. In 1917, another revolution in Russia kicked off, and the first stage of this event is known as the February Revolution, although it took place in March. The revolt was successful, and the Tsar gave up his power which effectively ended the Romanov dynasty. A temporary government was placed in charge, but people weren't happy with how they continued to handle the country. They were still having economic problems, and many of their issues didn't go away. As a result, the people attempted to make things right, and workers organized into councils, known in Russia as Soviets. As the Soviets continued to gain popularity and power, they teamed up with the Bolsheviks and forced the provisional government to give up its authority. The Bolsheviks took over their position, placed Vladimir Lenin in charge of the government, and the Soviet Union was born. As the Chinese movement began to pick up more speed, the campaign's focus started to change. It initially represented a nationalistic effort to unify China and become independent from any outside influence. This development manifested in targeting any foreign residents living in China. Like the Boxer Rebellion, which we covered during episode 83, Chinese locals targeted the foreign residents and their property in the area. Although they weren't as violent as they were during the Boxer Rebellion, there was a lot of anger towards foreigners, especially regarding the British and the Japanese. This tension eventually made its way to Americans in northern China. Multiple foreign nations sent naval vessels to help their citizens, including the United States. Marines assigned to the Asiatic fleet were given the task of protecting American citizens in China. They were formed into a battalion and sent to Tianjin on May 5, 1922. Here they stayed at the barracks of the 15th U.S. Infantry before they headed towards Peking. But the Marines' presence was enough. And soon after they arrived, the tension started to die down, and they returned to their ship. The following year, Chinese nationalists threatened to take over the Maritime Customs House at Canton, today known as Guangzhou. The commander of the Asiatic fleet sent in four destroyers and two gunboats carrying a detachment of Marines. Again, the presence of the Marines and the U.S. Navy was enough to calm the situation, and tensions died down. In 1924, conflicts began to escalate around Peking, and the American minister requested an additional 225 Marines to help. The Navy sent a unit from the USS Huron and some Marines from the Philippines to assist. The conditions in China were unstable moving forward, and detachments of Marines would continue to move in and out of the country for years. As Devil Dogs continued to protect American interest in China, the nationalist movement within the country continued to grow. In 1927, the Chinese learned that the Soviet representatives who were supposedly helping their activity were secretly planning to overthrow it, which led to a division within the Nationalist Party. The Bolshevik sympathizers detached themselves and became China's radical faction. This division led to more anti-foreign support within the party, and attacks on foreigners grew sometimes resulting in massacres. Although the radicals didn't specifically target American citizens during the heightened tensions, 
the commander of the Asiatic fleet began to foresee they would. In anticipation of a possible attack on U.S. citizens, he mobilized all Marines in East Asia, including Marines in Guam, and sent them to Shanghai. The force consisted of 15 officers and 326 enlisted. But this small force of Marines wasn't enough to support the 40,000 Allied troops anticipated to address the growing Chinese nationalist movement. The 4th Marines were called in to supplement the existing force. An additional 66 officers and 1,162 enlisted under Colonel Charles Hill left San Diego and arrived in Shanghai in February. The two groups of Marines met up and took over the international settlement with a mission statement they outlined as protection of American and foreign life and property. The Marines teamed up with British troops and the two forces stopped any hostile elements trying to enter the international settlement. Things were relatively peaceful for a while, but on March 21st, nationalists captured Shanghai. Two days later, they seized Nanjing, and on the 24th, the disorder started to focus on foreign nationals in the area, and they attacked outsiders. A few were killed in the chaos, including Americans. The Navy sent more cruisers from Hawaii to China in response to these attacks. The 6th Marines were reorganized, and Marines from various posts on the East Coast assembled in Philadelphia. After they gathered, Marines boarded trains, headed to San Diego, and from there to the Far East. Brigadier General Smedley Butler was placed in charge of all the Marines in China. He reinforced them with artillery, tanks, engineers, and service troops, and the newly formed brigade boarded the Henderson on April 7th and arrived in Shanghai 25 days later. With Butler's Marines in theater, the total Marine strength was 238 officers, 18 warrant officers, and 4,170 enlisted. About 16,000 Allied troops were in the area when Butler arrived, including 1,800 U.S. soldiers. But despite the effort to provide forces in the region, the violence settled down, and it became pretty quiet. This lack of activity left the Marines with very little to do, so they were assigned to the internal security of the international settlement. Things became routine after a few weeks, and Marines spent their time drilling, participating in parades, and conducting field training. They also organized sports teams and challenged other foreign military units to friendly competition. This small effort did wonders to keep up the morale in the area. Butler used this opportunity to promote a better appearance of U.S. nationals, and he helped the Chinese government any way he could. Butler also wanted to show that the Marines were a well-disciplined fighting force, so he required them to keep up with their military appearance and worked on drills until their movements were flawless. The Corps put on multiple military parades to impress the residents and promote goodwill. The ceremonies displayed the discipline of the Marines and complimented the locals. As 1927 ended, the number of violent protests started to die down, and many allied countries began to minimize the number of troops in China. The United States kept the 3rd Brigade there a little longer, and the number of Marines in country stayed the same throughout 1928. By January 1929, all Marines from the 3rd Brigade withdrew. 
Some were sent to the 4th Marines in Shanghai, Philippines, Guam, and the Asiatic Fleet, and the remaining Marines were sent back to the United States. China's Nationalist Party split further during 1929 as Soviet influence divided the party. The government broke off any connections with Russian advisors, but these decisions caused them to separate into two factions. Both would relentlessly fight each other until the Second Sino-Japanese War kicked off in 1937. The 4th Marines remained in Shanghai during this whole time. As the war between China and Japan progressed, it began to impact the Americans in the international settlement. On January 28th, Japanese troops garrisoned in the international settlement and attacked Shaipei. They bombed and set fire to a factory. Britain and the United States protested Japan's attack and moved even more troops to the area to protect against a potential counterattack. The 4th Marines received another 8 officers and 326 enlisted from the USS Houston. The 31st Infantry was also called in from the Philippines. The strength of the 4th remained high until the end of 1934, when one battalion disbanded and only 58 officers and 1,005 enlisted remained. Marines stayed in Shanghai throughout the Sino-Japanese War and continued with their duties. They experienced the occasional small arms fire, bombs, and a few artillery attacks, but Marines wouldn't see significant damage. By February 1938, the fighting moved west, and this conflict no longer threatened the American expats. The number of Marines in Shanghai wasn't justified anymore, and the brigade's headquarters, along with the six Marines, left on the 18th. About 200 Marines under Lieutenant Colonel W.C. James established a barracks in Tianjin at the end of the month. The remaining Army troops left at the beginning of March, and U.S. troop involvement in China died down considerably. Between the two world wars, the Marine Corps had six commandants, and the time they served in that position varied, from as little as one year to nine years. Each of these men made a significant contribution to the Corps, and many of their ideas and policies remain in place today. The first of these commandants was George Barnett. He was the first commandant to serve under a four-year appointment. He had the unique position of growing the Marine Corps to its height during the end of World War I, and then dealing with the demobilization after the war. On July 1, 1920, Major General John A. Lejeune replaced him as Commandant. Major General Lejeune had a couple of nicknames. The greatest of all leathernecks and the Marine's Marine, to name a couple. He had a very strong character, and he commanded respect every time he walked into a room. His competence and integrity earned him one of the best reputations of any officer who served in the Marine Corps. Lejeune spent his time as Commandant shifting the Marine Corps from a World War I fighting force to a peacetime unit preparing for the next war. He developed an educational system for all officers and enlisted serving vital roles and developed programs to retain the knowledge learned in World War I so the Corps could be prepared for similar threats in the future. These improvements are known as the Enlightenment of the Corps, named after the Age of Enlightenment the intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. On November 1, 1921, Lejeune issued Marine Corps Order No. 47, which I consider the man's most significant legacy. The order opens with, quote, 
The following will be read to the command on November 10th, 1921, and hereafter on November 10th of every year. Should the order not be received by November 10th, 1921, it will be read upon receipt, unquote. This order effectively established the Marine Corps' birthday, and since its release, the Corps has read his message every year. Before Lejeune authorized this order, Marines celebrated their birthday on July 11th, the date President John Adams effectively created the United States Marine Corps. In October 1921, Major Edwin McClellan suggested that Lejeune change the birthday to November 10th, 1775. Lejeune felt this date accurately captured the Corps' history and agreed to McClellan's recommendation. His order summarized the history, mission, and tradition of the Corps and directed that it be read to every command annually. The 2021 Marine Corps birthday marked the 100th year Lejeune's order was honored. Upon his retirement, Lejeune recommended Wendell Neville to take his spot. Neville took command on March 5, 1929. He wasn't your typical political general. Neville was a battle-hardened general. He received the Marine Corps Brevet Medal during the Spanish-American War, which was the highest decoration a Marine could receive at the time. He was also the recipient of the Medal of Honor in Veracruz. Neville understood what it meant to be a Marine during war. However, his tenure was short-lived and he died a sudden death 16 months after he took office. His superb military career earned him a place as one of the three musketeers of the Marines, a moniker created by Smedley Butler, and included himself, Lejeune, and Neville. Neville's sudden death caused a lot of ripples in the Corps, and deciding who should take his place created a lot of controversies. The top prospect for the role was Smedley Butler. He was the senior general and had an excellent record of success in conflicts overseas. However, the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps was Brigadier General Ben Fuller. And although he didn't have the same experience as Butler, his billet made him the next logical choice. The position of commandant remained open for a month, and the decision was ultimately made to put Fuller in this role. Butler didn't take the news lightly. He stayed in the Marine Corps for another year, retired, and then made his opinions known in an article published in the Liberty, titled, To Hell with the Admirals. This internal conflict was an embarrassment for the Corps. Butler vented in the magazine, quote, My grave mistake was in seeking a commission in the Marine Corps in 1898, and immediate action in the Spanish-American War, instead of bidding for a congressional appointment to the United States Naval Academy, where I could have spent three or four quiet years to emerge an ensign in the Navy. It is because of this error in judgment that I retire from the Marine Corps, unquote. Butler moved on from the Marine Corps and spoke out against war. From 1935 to 1937, Butler served as a spokesman for the American League Against War and Fascism, and wrote his famous expose, War is a Racket. This point in time is where the legacy of Butler changes for a lot of Marines. Although his actions were arguably motivated by contempt, he brings up a lot of good points. Some praise his vocal demonization of war, while others call him unpatriotic. 
Many of his verbal oppositions can be interpreted as throwing a tantrum on his part, but there is a lot of truth to what he said. One of the Founding Fathers' most significant concerns was a military with too much power. This belief is why they implemented checks and balances such as the civilian control of the military. And it's also why Congress disbanded the military after the American Revolution and subsequent wars. But although Fuller's term as commandant started with controversy, he was highly successful and responsible for establishing the Fleet Marine Force concept and preventing a drastic reduction despite the 1929 Great Depression. He remained commandant until March 1, 1934, where John H. Russell succeeded him. Russell continued Fuller's Fleet Marine Force concept and turned it into one of the principal functions of the Corps. Under his leadership, he also developed a radical selection system for officer promotions. The President of the United States saw the shortcomings of the officer promotion process in the Marine Corps, and he changed the process a bit. Instead of picking the most senior Marine to take his spot, he selected Brigadier General Thomas Holcomb who was far from having the most time and grade. We've spoken about Holcomb a lot, as he was a crucial player in World War I. His experience was valuable in preparing the Corps for World War II. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll finish up the 20 years between the World Wars. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is A History of Russia. From Peter the Great to Gorbachev, by Mark Steinberg. I picked up this book a couple of weeks ago to learn more about the history of Russia, and it doesn't disappoint. This book dives deep into Russia's past by examining not only the documented history of the empire, but also by examining the viewpoints of its leaders. It is fascinating to learn how one of the world's largest empires collapsed into one of the most impoverished countries after World War I. The format of this book is not your traditional storyline. It's more of a lecture told by Professor Steinberg. It's long, almost 19 hours, but I think Steinberg did a great job discussing 300 years of Russian history. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, Find out more information about each show and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.